Many people want to save the world. Like the lady in that little advert. They want to be a hero. They want to do something spectacular. But of course the reality of doing this is much harder than the dream. To make a real difference in this world is much more challenging than we could imagine. So that advert suggests that we just lower our expectations and do something less challenging. Instead of being an eco-warrior and saving the planet, just drive a Kia car with a little bit better fuel economy. But do we really need to settle for second best in our lives? Do we just need to lower our expectations and accept that we can't do anything really that significant in our lives? Well, not according to Jesus. Last week we were thinking about Jesus' amazing words to his disciples at the start of John chapter 14. Even though the disciples were distressed by hearing that one of them would betray him, Peter would deny him, and Jesus would soon be leaving them, Jesus told them, do not let your hearts be troubled. They didn't need to be overwhelmed with fear or worry. Because Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And so, through faith in Jesus, they could be sure that one day, Jesus would come back for them and take them to be with him forever in his Father's house. And we were thinking about how that truth should encourage us. (laughs) Thanks, Alison. (laughs) And we were thinking about how that truth should encourage us in our lives. Despite all the trouble that comes into our lives, we can put our trust in Jesus. Because we have a place prepared for us in heaven. But that night, Jesus didn't just encourage his disciples by telling them how he would guarantee their future in heaven. He also encouraged them by telling them how he was going to transform their present on earth. He told them how through him they would know the Father and how that would empower them to live a different kind of life. So we're going to read from John chapter 14, following on from where we left off last week. John chapter 14 and verse 7. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, You do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these. Because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name. So that the Son may bring glory to the Father. 
you may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. In this section, Jesus promises under pressured disciples three life-transforming gifts. The first one is a personal relationship to enjoy. Verse 7, if you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. Now sometimes when we talk about knowing someone, what we really mean is nothing more than we know lots of facts about them. We know who they are. We know who they're related to. We know what they've done in their lives. In that way, sports fans, they know their favourite athlete. Or film buffs, they know their favourite actor. Or historians know their favourite historical figure. But all of them without ever meeting them. But then other times, we talk about knowing someone when we mean someone we've met. Someone we've spent some time with. So we know our neighbours. We know our school friends. We know our work colleagues. But even there, sometimes that knowledge can be superficial and shallow. But then there are other times when we, when we say we know someone, what we mean is that we really know them. We have a, a deep personal relationship with them. We have a connection with them that is special and intimate. Well, that's the kind of relationship that Jesus is talking about here. Not simply knowing the facts about God, as if he was just a person to study. Not just a passing acquaintance with God, as if he's someone to say hi to now and again, like on a Sunday morning. But a deep, personal, loving relationship with God. A relationship to enjoy, to delight in, to grow in throughout our lives and for all eternity. And this is the kind of relationship that real life is defined by. Later on in John's Gospel, Jesus said this, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowing God in that personal relationship is what life is all about. And this is the kind of relationship that our hearts long for. This was Philip's heartfelt request here. To Jesus. Verse 8. Lord, show us the Father. And that will be enough for us. It's the universal desire of mankind. To see God. To experience His presence. To be amazed by His glory. To be enthralled by the awesomeness of His majesty and power. But this isn't only our deepest desire, it's also our greatest challenge in life. Because as Mags reminded us when we were in our communion time, our iniquities have separated us from God, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 59. Your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He will not hear. Since sin has come into this world, our relationship with God has been broken. We've experienced a separation from God. And so we can't fully know Him. And as a result of that, people have sought a substitute 
knowledge of God with idols. Idols are a way to bring something into our lives that we can, 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 can get close to as a substitute for God. Now they could be statues of wood or stone or gold or silver or they could be this, the idols of religious ceremonies or religious institutions or materialism or our celebrity culture or sport or politics or so many other things. All because we deep down long for something bigger than ourselves. Something transcendent. Something that will give our lives meaning and purpose. But here, Jesus declared that that search for something real and living and personal connection with God can end. It's over. Verse 7. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. From that point on, the disciples didn't hope, didn't have to hopelessly long to see God. Now they didn't need to settle for kind of a substitute of idolatry. Instead, they would know that they had seen God. And they would be able to know God personally in their lives. That's all because of Jesus and what he has accomplished. Look at Jesus' answer to Philip's request. Verse 9. Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me seen the Father. I think this is one of the most staggering claims ever made. This man, born in Bethlehem, laid in a manger, grew up in the backwater of Nazareth, worked as a, as a carpenter. He claimed that if anybody saw him, they saw God. And he claimed from that moment on, this revelation was complete. Why was that? Why from that moment on? Well, it's because what Jesus was going to go to, just at that moment, he was going to leave, leave them and go to the cross. And there Jesus would complete his revelation of the glory of God. On the cross He would ultimately reveal God's holiness and his love. God's justice and his grace. And there on the cross he would die in our place. Paying the price for our sins. And opening up the way to a relationship with God. So Peter said, Christ died for sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. And so since that point, those who by faith see Jesus and put their faith in Jesus, they see the Father and they know 
the Father in a personal, loving, intimate relationship with Him. It's an amazing promise. But Jesus wasn't asking His disciples just to take His word for it. He wasn't just asking the disciples just to accept that as a fact. He wanted them to consider the evidence that pointed to that reality so they could be sure of that. This evidence, verse 10, included his character. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Jesus is like God in every aspect of his character. This is what Paul said. He is the image of the invisible God. When we see Jesus, we see perfectly the character of God. Everything that Jesus does, God does. Everything that Jesus is, God is. The evidence also included his words. Verse 10, the words I say to you are not just my own. When Jesus spoke, he spoke the very words of God. So his teaching is God's truth. He said earlier in John chapter 7, my teaching is is not my own, it comes from the one, him who sent me comes from the Father. So no wonder people said about him, no one ever spoke the way this man does. He was unique. And people say, everything he says is from God. And then his, the evidence also included his works. Verse 11, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. The miracles that Jesus did, remember, remember, remember they're like signposts pointing to the reality of the identity of Jesus and his power. And that's why John has recorded them in the Gospels. These were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So today we can look at the evidence. The evidence of His character, the evidence of His words, the evidence of His works. And be convinced that Jesus, that in Jesus our deepest need can be realized. Our greatest challenge can be overcome. And we can accept this promise that in Him, right now, we can enjoy a personal relationship, a personal connection with God. That is what Jesus offers us today. And because of this, secondly, we can have a power to depend on. Listen to these amazing words, verse 12. These are the ones you'll scratch your head over. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. The disciples had left everything to follow Jesus. They'd committed themselves to living with Jesus, learning from him and serving together with him. 
But that night they would be in trouble because Jesus had told them that he was leaving them. What were they going to do now? Was this new direction and purpose in their lives going to end? Well, not at all. Because even though Jesus was leaving them, he wasn't going to leave them without a purpose to live for. Instead, he was leaving them to continue his work. To do what he had been doing. Later he would tell them, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And this is God's call in our lives too. Last week we were thinking about how amazing it's going to be when Jesus comes back and takes us to be with him in heaven, in his Father's house. How wonderful that will be. But we're not just here to wait and long for heaven. Neither do we need to go and search for something that would make our lives meaningful and purposeful and significant. Instead, Jesus has given us that purpose for our lives. And it's nothing less than to continue His mission in this world. To express His love to the broken. To demonstrate his grace to sinners. To proclaim his cross as the only hope for a world in despair. And to to encourage his people to be all that Jesus has called them to be. This is what Jesus called the disciples to do just before he ascended into heaven. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to be everything I have commanded you. And there is no greater calling than that. There's no higher ambition for our lives. No greater cause for us to give everything we are and have to. if you're like me then sometimes it just feels too much too difficult too impossible how can we do what Jesus did how can we serve in his mission surely we're far too weak far too selfish far too inadequate far too powerless to do that But Jesus here didn't just give us a purpose to live for. He also promised the power to accomplish this. Look at verse 12 again, the second half. He promised his disciples, those who believe in him will do even greater things than these. Because I'm going to the Father. Through faith in Jesus... His disciples would be so supernaturally empowered to fulfill their purpose that they would do even greater things than what they'd seen Jesus do. That's another verse you read and you say, well, what does that mean? Were the disciples really to expect to do more spectacular miracles than Jesus did? Is that what Jesus was talking about? Or was it something else? 
Well, if you read into the book of Acts, you can see that the, the apostles really did continue to see God work miraculously through them. The book of Acts records the disciples seeing people healed and restored and even raised from the dead through their ministry. But I think it's really difficult to describe the miracles that they did as more spectacular or greater than what Jesus did. Because they, for example, didn't walk on water. They didn't feed crowds with a little packed lunch of bread and, and, and fish. They didn't heal everybody who came to them. Or they didn't indeed rise from the dead like Jesus did. But what they did do was they took the message of the gospel to more people. Jesus ministered in a relatively small area. But the disciples, well, they preached the gospel in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the disciples saw more people come to faith in Jesus and experience salvation. Remember on the day of Pentecost, when Peter stood up and preached the gospel? About 3,000 were added to their number that day. And of course, the church today, the community of people who have truly trusted in Jesus and experienced his salvation, is in the billions. And they did all of this through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses. The disciples were going to do greater things than Jesus because Jesus was going to the Father and the Father was going to send the Holy Spirit to them. So these are the greater things than the disciples would do. It is in bringing people into the greatest of all miracles. The miracle of salvation. And that is what Jesus wants us to be involved in as well. Despite how overwhelmed or inadequate we may feel, through his Holy Spirit, Jesus has called and equipped and empowered us to continue his mission. To draw men and women and young people of all nations into his kingdom. Isn't that something worth living for? Isn't that something worth giving our all to? Despite how tough it gets. Despite how many issues that we personally have in our lives. And if we accept this call in our lives, then Jesus finally offers us a prayer that we can be confident in. About 13 years ago, a guy was fishing off the coast of Atlantic City in New Jersey when he spotted a plastic bag floating in the water. Inside it, he found about 300 prayers that had been mailed to a local pastor. Most of which were unopened. The pastor had died a couple of years earlier and it seems that these letters had just been dumped as rubbish when his house was cleared out. Now some of the prayers were frivolous. 
Like the man who asked God to help him win the lottery. Twice. Once wasn't enough. But many of the letters were heartbreaking as people just poured out their hearts, crying out to God for their loved ones, for forgiveness, for help. And it's such a tragic thought, isn't it? To think all these prayer letters were just tossed away. Unopened. Unanswered. But Jesus gave here the, us the confidence that if we pray in his name, then this will never happen to our prayers. Verse 13, And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. Now, of course, this is not a blank check for us. Jesus was not promising that we'd get everything that we wanted if we just add, in Jesus' name, at the end of our request. This is not a magic formula. Asking in Jesus' name is asking according to Jesus' will. It's in keeping with His character. In in keeping with His priorities. It's to ask for what Jesus would ask for. What pleases Him in a way that would bring Him glory. So John, in his letter, says, This is the confidence that we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. So we are invited to to present all our requests to God, but we need to do it in a way that is consistent with who Jesus is. We need to learn to pray as he did. For example, in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but your will be done. So we need to be careful how we use this promise. But on the other side, other side of it, we, we, mustn't, we make, must make sure that we don't explain it away. Yes, we need to be careful that we don't misapply it, but let's not explain it so it turns into nothing. Because this is a wonderful promise. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Yes, Jesus may decide to answer in a different way than we expect. He may have a higher purpose and a greater plan. He may do more than we ask or imagine. But if we are in relationship with Him, and if we pray in His name, then we can be confident, absolutely sure, that He hears our cries and He answers our prayers. So folks, in our lives, we don't need to settle for second best. We don't need to lower our expectations, just accepting that we can't do anything significant. If we put our trust in Jesus, we can live out an extraordinary kind of life. Because in Jesus, we have a personal relationship with God to enjoy. 
We have the power of God in our lives to depend on. And we have the privilege to pray to God. Confident that he will answer our prayers according to his perfect will.